right? Or Lizzo with her Grammys and all her amazing songs, mm-hmm. you know, and, but we look at these celebrity figures and we say, but, but, but what about your health? Because we just want you to be there for your son, Tess Holiday, And we just want you to, you know, we don't want you to get diabetes, you know, um, Lizzo. Mm-hmm. And they said, we have got to stop that. That is bias and it's wrong. We've got to support all humans and their body mm-hmm. autonomy to learn and grow and take care of themselves however they want and stop insisting healthism on everybody. But then me as a clinician who I am here for people who are concerned about their health and well-being, I want to help you change the definitions of what you see as health, so it's mental health and physical. I want to help you have a better time at the doctors. I want to help you conceive if you want to conceive. I want to help you to achieve all these health-related goals that you think center on you achieving some amount of thinness that is probably not biologically possible and not, but, but you'll have a better life because through body kindness, that compassion and that preference seeking around food and movement and sleep, it's just, you are able to let go and reject all the nastiness that's around you in the world. And that's real important for people. Welcome to, and then everything changed a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Rebecca Scritchfield. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified exercise physiologist, and author of the book, Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from the Inside Out and Never Say Diet Again. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy that you're here. I was wondering, one of the biggest questions I had when I encountered your work was when you first rejected diet culture, when that first came over you that you thought, wait a minute, I don't need to do this. Mm. I feel like there were lots of little signs, but I think if I had to name a moment that really, really struck me um, it was actually in working with clients and I was, I was marketing. Um, I have to laugh at myself, even to, but it was like healthy weight management, right? So I was still using the words weight management, which we now, I mean, this was in 2007. So we now okay. know, I mean, it's been so many years later that if somebody's saying healthy weight management, they're not really educated on the sort of body positivity movement and health at every size, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. even the idea of talking about weight management is, um, is biased and triggering. And, and the more accepted way to, to term it is helping people who have weight concerns. And so, cause it's the idea is like clinically is like, of course, living in our world, um, people will have concerns about their weight or, you know, is, you know, what is healthy or how their weight and health intersect. And, and so when you're helping people break free from diet culture, it's it's not the kind of thing that, oh, I, so I'm not supposed to have any, you know, weight concerns or anything at all. It's, mm-hmm. No, it's very human to have those concerns. Um, but it's this idea is when you do collaborative work, um, how can we talk about your concerns about your weight and your body in context of um, your lived experiences and genetics and all these other beautiful factors that have an impact on your well-being, um, and it's really trying to look at look at health differently, um, very different than what culture says. The most important thing you could do is center your weight loss as a mm-hmm. sign of your health. So, mm-hmm. anyway. 
back down to 2007, uh, 2007 <laughs> I was, you know, like I kind of knew that there was something wrong with dieting. So I thought, well, mm-hmm. there's a healthy way to manage weight, right? So that's kind of well, where were that Were you in that field from. already? Because you said you were marketing, but were, were you in the weight and health field? Yep. I was practicing as a dietitian. I was a certified exercise physiologist. And and, and before that, I was um, I was certified as a personal trainer. And so when I was in college, I would teach group fitness classes. I would have oh, personal okay. training clients. Um, and all like, you know, from this desire of like, I want to help people take care of themselves and um, like it, what's so funny about my, my path in diet culture is like when I was nine, I remember realizing that, that my heart was going to beat until one day it didn't. And then that, that meant that, that there was something meaningful and powerful about taking care of your body. It was diet mm-hmm. culture that taught me to believe, right. That it's like be sexy and, you know, whatever, get the guy, you know, like mm-hmm. all those messages. And then just, you know, that legs should be lean and what that sure. meant or perfect food eating, you know, like, you know, I learned a lot about what, what, um, health was supposed to be from the messages around me. And, and that even included my training as a dietitian and my training in, es- in exercise physiology. They're, they're, they're very weight centric. So I, when you think back on those terms that you learned along the way, or do you just see it so obviously now, like the terms that they used as they were teaching you and as you went about it? Yes, now just because of the way that things are evolving in the work that mm-hmm. I've been doing for myself and 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 with colleagues like since 2007, you know, but there's been um fat activism going on since the 1970s. It's just it never crossed my path until mm-hmm. um my own rock bottom issues and you know, like essentially it, it was a combination of um, you know, I was still doing disordered eating patterns and, and really, oh, but this is healthy, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, and everything from, you know, just sort of paying attention to things like South Beach diet when I'm also trying to train for a marathon. And so, <laughs> right. you know, they just like counterintuitive, so, like- so counterintuitive. And here I have all this education. I'm still, mm. you know, in that, that's the grip that, that, that's how, enmeshed, um, health and, you know, like the weight loss industry have become, and that's what makes it so dangerous. You know, there used to be a time, believe it or not, when physicians would be concerned when women lost weight because it was a sign of poor health. And now it's like, Hmm. it's always praised. Um, that's so so interesting. I'm wondering, I'm wondering when that was considered a dangerous thing. Do you have an idea of what century that was when, when doctors (laughs) were actually afraid? Yeah. In, in like Victorian times, you know, Mm -hmm. so trust me, there was plenty of female oppression. But, you know, when, you know, dieting was around and you would, I mean, people were being corseted, right? So not good, healthy things. But if they saw weight loss, it wasn't the first thing to do wasn't to congratulate or even prescribe (laughs) it. I mean, there are doctors now who will put people on anything from keto to intermittent fasting to, um, to things like I know HCG is still around and it's like right. basically fast and take hormones and you're not supposed to exercise. It's so th- there's a lot of and it, I've had friends who've actually told me about going to the doctor when they were sick, when they had something seriously wrong or mm-hmm. something wrong in their stomach or even a, a more autoimmune type of issue mm-hmm. and a doctor telling them that they looked really good and how did they how did they lose the weight? Oh god, that's so awful. I know. Mm-hmm. I know there's, there's a lot of learning and unlearning that really needs to happen. Um, yeah. And, you know, for, for me in, in that 2007 window, when I was 
you know, when I, I could tell when I was being really honest with myself, I was like, I just don't think you really know what you need to know about how to care for yourself and also how to help people. And, um, there was a particular client who was a higher weight woman and she was also marathon training and she had done marathons before. And she like does the slow pace jog walk. But like Mm -hmm. when you can commit to like four hours on a Saturday (laughs) for like a long run at any pace, you, you were not a sedentary person, right? Like, right. And so, and, and, and it, there was a particular session because I get, I thought it was being helpful before there were Fitbits, there were like these armband monitors and they used to have them on the biggest loser too. And I was one of the first, I had bought up these clinical monitors and slapped <laughs> them on their arms. Like, I'm going to help you by watching you 24 <laughs> seven. Right. And so the, the clients would log online and the things that you would see are just all these diety things. I mean, we were energy intake up high, calorie intake low. And like, you know, you know, the bagel thins, not a regular bagel right. and the cheese sticks, not a regular piece of cheese. Um, and, and just, and you know, it was just so, it, it looked joyless. The food looked mm. joyless and she was crying about, you know, I went out for pizza on Friday night with my husband and I had a long run on Saturday and it was so yummy brick oven pizza on Capitol Hill and blah, blah, blah. It's like, but I'm just not losing weight. So maybe I shouldn't have done that. And it was just, it was things like that where I was like, Rebecca, it was like, you, you've been working with this client for so long and you see her body is a larger body Mm -hmm. and she had a history of an eating disorder and it, it, you know, um, anorexia at one point, binge eating disorder at one point. And it's like, and, and while that was long gone, it's like, you know that the way she's eating is restrictive. It is so rigid. You wouldn't want to eat this way when you were at your worst, you were eating this way and you know how bad that was psychologically. And Mm -hmm. I I just really realized, I was like, I don't think any of this crap I'm doing is helping her. I should be refunding her money and I need to go back to my toolbox and figure out what, what is it? And, and it was a number of steps in that pivot. It was, um, studying intuitive eating under Evelyn Trivoli. Um, and she's a co-creator of intuitive eating. So that book came out in 1995 and I started studying under her in 2007. And just in the last year, really intuitive eating has taken a major, I mean, it's been in vogue. I mean, it's been all over like a kind of global interest. It was just in good morning America. Um, but just know that there's been science building behind intuitive eating for decades, hundreds of studies now at this point. And, um, and, and the most interesting pivot is that in the latest edition of, the, of intuitive eating is they're finally associating calling it an anti-diet plan. And that is a major positive shift for this idea of, of rejecting diet culture. And again, it's not that we're rejecting thoughts or concerns or feelings we have about weight and our bodies because those have been conditioned to us. Mm-hmm. Since before we were born, it's going to be here when we go away. That's just the honest truth. But it's so you're saying, like, not to punish one shouldn't feel bad for the feelings that they have around this because it's obviously indoctrinated. It's more about what do you do with it? A hundred percent. And that's essentially what body kindness is, is it incorporates intuitive eating as like a way of relating to food. Um, and it, you know, so it's like intuitive eating is so amazing. It's like, when I thought about what does the world need, it's like, 
the world needs the answer that I had the question of, which is what do I do if I care about health, but I don't ever want to diet again. And mm-hmm. so like and I incorporated intuitive eating in the body kindness philosophy, but also around like understanding that I've helped plenty of people change their habits. But what I've been doing is helping them let go of the idea that they have to reach a certain amount of weight loss in order to improve their health or improve their habits. And actually habit change is very, very hard. So what are the ingredients for that? Which a lot of that is, is grounded in, um, from a counseling standpoint, motivational interviewing. So where it's, Mm -hmm. it's not about the clinician do this, do that, which, Mm -hmm. you know, here you're paying me so I can give you all the answers, but more about having conversations and listening and valuing the lived experience. So that came into play. Um, Mm -hmm. I became certified as a clinical anxiety counselor. So me just understanding mindfulness and the mind body connection and how, how trauma and anxiety show Mm -hmm. up in the body and in our mind. And so that became part of body kindness, um, positive psychology as well. And so really it was about me pausing and deciding to be a student again, but pulling in, what do we know about nutrition and exercise science that is legit, but how do we take the weight bias out of all of it? And then what do we know about psychology and mental health that is legit? And by the way, also has weight bias, which I was surprised to see, but it very much does. But take it out of that. And Mm -hmm. then how would I guide a person to basically learn to reparent themselves and to connect to this inner caregiver? And that essentially is what body kindness is. It's a practice of caregiving for oneself based on three pillars, love, connect, and care. And um, body kindness evolves as a person evolves because as you learn and grow, your needs change and you're able to do more, you know, and, and that's the beautiful thing of it. You're always going to be practicing body kindness. Um, by it's an di- active practice. It's yeah. not like, it's not like one and done. You're, you just, you can phone it in and you figure it out once and then it's over. It's like, you have to constantly, I mean, I don't want to use the word vigilant because that mm-hmm. makes it sound uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's something that you're supposed to be receptive to as much as possible. And and it's kind of a, a, a living, breathing part of you, right? Yeah. And it's, I like the word like evolve and like evolution. So if you think of, as you know, from reading the book, you know, I talk a lot about spiraling up Mm -hmm. and one of the interesting things about when you think of upward spirals and downward spirals is that you end up being in a similar place as you evolve, but things are different. So you can see things a little bit differently. Um, and yeah, because you're always with yourself, you're going to be caregiving for yourself until the end there's, and, and your values change, right? Like, um, I noticed that my values have shifted, um, you know, as from when I became a mother, but then as my kids are entering in this age where, you know, so they're, they're six and seven, but they're, they're literally, how I want to engage with them and teaching them about the world and life and in the conversations we have about um, our our own bodies and our own well-being, but then how we want to engage with others and not making judgment. So so there's like a lot of there's a lot of value shifting that's happening just based on who matters to me and what matters to me. And and the way that shifts is like, well, I don't have all the time in the world. So how do I choose to spend time that matters. Um, and And that's also like, uh, like mental energy and emotional energy. Like where are you going to direct yourself? Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And that is exactly, it's a good way to define a value. It's, I want to be the kind of person who, you know, and that value might come into, you know, really savers quality time with people I care about. And that could be, you know, truly your sister or your sister from another mister, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but just like, gosh, I want to spend more time engaging in relationships and, and, and finding positive connection and joy in those things and noticing that when you do, you have that sort of spiral up feeling and positive emotions and that, that lift, that upward emotion does help you want to be kinder to yourself. It's like, wow, I just had a great lunch out with a friend Mm -hmm. and I was really helping her solve a problem. And clearly I know how to do compassion. What would it look like if I direct that compassion inward? Right. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm allowing that yoga class I went to or that, that walk and talk I did with my friend that that was what I had time to do for movement today. And so that is enough. Um, or maybe you're a pretty sedentary person and you're interested in exercise, but you know that it's not going to be extreme. So how do you let like gentle, joyful movement be enough in a culture that says no pain, no gain? Well, I was just going to say that because sometimes if we listen to our intuition, we might be drawn to a class like that, but then you've got these other people who are lifting tractors (laughs) and they might feel like, well, you might feel judged or self-judgment because you're not actually burning or shredding or hurting the way you're supposed to. And it's really hard, I would imagine, to hold on to that inner voice that you're trying to use to heal yourself. So so how difficult is it for people to make the transition? You know, I think it is going to depend on a, a number of factors. And I think one, one um, very strong factor is um, it depends on where you're at with your mental health um, right now and the time and resources you have to put into a practice of body kindness. And it also depends on how much internalized weight stigma you have. So for example, if you are a person who's been dieting your whole life, who's felt lots of body shame your whole life, um, and that could be at any size, you're going to have some internalized weight stigma. But if you have thin privilege, and what I would define that is you could walk into a store and you're straight size. So you might be like, oh, there's nothing in the color I like, but you will be able to find a top that fits. It's just not right. your color. That is one way that I identify thin privilege for people. Um, that internalized weight stigma and all the history that you've had, it's still going to be challenging. Um but you're going to have an easier time than someone who isn't as straight size because they have to do more emotional labor to move through a world that just doesn't fit for them. So that could be anything from they need to go to their doctor and they're anticipating a weight lecture. And so they don't want to go to the doctor right? or they try to buy exercise clothes and they just, they have to order them online because they don't carry them in stores. There's a lot you know, when you have thin privilege, you do get an easier passage through life and you might not even see it. Um, so you're still doing plenty of of emotional work and body kindness, but I would flag that, you know, chronic dieters who are trying to step away, who are also, you know, identified today as living in a larger body. I want to hold extra compassion for you that I understand, you know, that it's not just, you know, you deciding for yourself, you're rejecting diet culture, but it's a lot easier for a thinner person to be like, I'm not dieting. So here's my ice cream cone. And Mm. when you Mm -hmm. do it, Mm -hmm. people are going to be like, but what about your health? 
And that sucks that you have to do that extra emotional labor, but mm-hmm. it is worth it because you literally have no choice, right? If you care about enhancing your well-being and never dieting again, you're going to have to find a way to that sword that's kind of pointed at you and saying, I'm a problem to turn that sword outward and say, you know, culture is a problem. And I need to stop and think about who really matters to me that I can lean on for support. Um, so for example, I have a client right now who, who has a lot of those factors. So higher weight history of an eating disorder. She knows she can't chronic diet. She does not want to go to an eating disorder. She knows there's a lot of things that are just not options. She has a son, a young son that she really wants to help raise him, um, you know, in a totally different body trusting way, but her partner who she loves and cares about deeply is not on the same page as her and is still dealing with like a lot of um, internalized his own body shame mm-hmm. and weight stigma. And so it's like, imagine where it's like you want your partner in life, the person you love to unconditionally support you on your path. And he supports her on her path, but he's just not there. So he's more of a burden yes. than a supporter. And that's some really hard crap to like wrestle with. Like your own life partner sure. isn't able to be what you need them to be so that you have an easier time. And so we were just talking about these visualizations of, you know, you are not alone. You have people, but imagine as if you were alone, you are strong enough. What is the next body kindness choice you need to make? Because you're not always going to get every single person you want to have on board to be totally on board with you on your path. And you must keep going on your path. You have no other choice. It seems really hard, Rebecca, because I feel like if you've invested in a life partner and most people areas of your life together are good, but then you start doing work on yourself with body positivity and intuitive eating and kindness and start to really figure out where all these feelings, these early feelings come from. And you're trying to revise your life, but then the person you've invested in is not on board. I wonder how that will go, like in this case particularly, because then you might feel like you you can't be vulnerable around that person. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where I would really advise boundaries. Um, so the first thing that anyone could practice is say, okay, let me do me. You know, also that visual of like secure your oxygen mask before helping others, right? Right, you know? right, right. And literally, I actually have an old airplane oxygen mask that I was able to buy online years ago. And I'll put mm-hmm. it in clients' hands and, you know, watch the tears come because we all know what it means and we all know how hard it is to do. Yeah. Um, but if you take a deep breath and say, let me do me. And the second thing I'll borrow from Brene Brown where she says, what's the most generous assumption that you can make about someone else? And so it might go something like this. I believe that this person is really trying and they just don't have the tools. Mm. So what can I do to hold kindness in that direction? They just don't have the tools to meet my needs, but my needs really matter. They are important. And so what would it look like for me to say, I don't need everyone else. um, And even people I really care about, like I want them to be in step with me, but I don't need them to be upset with me. So I see that more as of like a loss of like, not yet. That person mm, is not mm-hmm. yet in step with me, but I don't need them in order for me to take my next step. And even that is generous. And even that is a kind of loving way to approach it. Oh, that's a hundred percent. I mean, if you can do that, you are on the caregiving path. You are so on the body kindness path. And so then what, where that actual verbal boundary might be is something um, that goes like this, you know, 
I know you to be the kind of person who cares about me very much. I know you love me. I believe that in my heart. And, um, and I am feeling like, um, there is going to be some work that we, we need to do in our relationship so that we can agree on how we're going to have conversations about health and well-being, so that we can help each other and and protect that love and that kindness. Um, I am mm-hmm. asking um, for you to agree that we could start taking those steps to figure out how we can work together on this journey. And all you're asking for is, you know, um, a, a space to carry on further conversation. And so hopefully you get a yes out of something like that. And that's all you need to know right now is that you have a person who is willing to understand that there are differences and then is interested in being collaborative. Um, because from there, it is probably going to involve some amount of relationship therapy type work. So I highly recommend working with therapists individually, but then you know, separately, there could be some relationship therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Have permission to let your relationship be where it needs to be while you keep practicing body kindness. Because again, as you're spiraling up and you're learning and growing, you are learning how to step more solidly in your values. And as doing so, you're going to learn more about what you stand for and your own boundaries. And so taking that into relationship work is so much more productive. Um, mm-hmm. So, so well, it's also like you can't cut off one part of yourself and and kind of contain. It's to it's what you're talking about is y- y- there's no way to compartmentalize this work, right? Mm-hmm. When you start to love yourself and just start to practice this, it has to extend to all the areas mm-hmm. because exactly. that's right. Because that's what actually will foster more growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. No. 100%. And it's just. The other thing I I always want to let people know is that in the beginning of any major change, hope and confidence, okay, hope and confidence are supposed to be very low. (laughs) And, And so if it's like, if your mind's like, I don't know if I can handle this and what if and worries, it's like, thank your brain. Thank you, mind, for working. And this worry, this worry, this stress is energy that says I really, really care about practicing body kindness. And I'm at you know, I'm in kindergarten level, you know, you know, yeah. I'm at the beginning and I just don't know. Thank you, mind, for working and telling me that this worry is energy that I really care about this. And so I'm going to let those worries pass on by while I'm just reading the book and doing reflections. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm just trying to connect to this caregiver. And it's like, one chapter at a time, one page mm. at a time, one reflection at a time. You're already doing a great job practicing body <laughs> kindness. Like you're practicing your penmanship. You're practicing your letters. Yes. And just <laughs> this gentle and just notice, notice how your hope and confidence grows. And so like one of the things I mentioned in the book is to think of, you know, because you can make any choice and to try to think of a choice option that is small, smart, and swift because those, those choice options actually grow your hope and confidence, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So look, I've got 10 minutes left in my lunch break. I'm not even change clothes. I'm just going to go take a walk outside, a gentle walk. I'm going to look at the trees, smell the flowers. I'm going to let myself feel something in my body, some type of positive emotion, some type of mental and emotional break. I don't need a hardcore workout right now. I'm just starting to learn what 
what I might value around movement. And this walk break, this mental walk break was what I had the time to do right now. And that alone is enough. And that boosts your hope and confidence. So you could do it again the next day and get to the mm-hmm. weekend to where then you might plan something else. But it's this idea of like your hope and confidence will grow with a practice. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that you've ever met someone that have you ever met a woman in your work that didn't equate a smaller size with a better version of themselves? You know, I would say that, yes, I have. And it's mostly been folks who have been to some really hard, dark places with trauma and disordered eating, chronic dieting, eating disorder, where they have done enough work and gotten to a point to where it's like, I've seen that darkness mm-hmm. and this is the light where I want to be in to create a better life. And so it's not that I'll never have a negative body moment again, or I'll, you know, like, like I'll never have any amount of difficulty, but there's just a strength in this commitment. And like, for what I value, I know that my better life is with my self-care practices I have here and it so it might be a priority to manage anxiety and to continue to go to therapy appointments and to mm-hmm. you know and, and sort of find a workable way of eating that fits for you and, and so I I've definitely seen that it's absolutely possible um you know I think when you know I think this is worth talking about it's like when I've seen body kind of really take hold for people. Like you, so the first thing I say is that you absolutely cannot use body kindness as a way to like try to lose weight. People try <laughs> to do that with that and intuitive eating. I get so frustrated when I sometimes see the body kindness. That's hashtag. interesting. That's oh yeah. Interesting. Uh, like I'll see it on Instagram and it'll be like before and after pictures. And I'm just like, have you really read the book or listened <laughs> to the podcast? Because you wouldn't be doing that. And it's, so I just, I try to like ignore things like on social, but here's what I have honestly seen. I've seen clients who've gone from sedentary to engage in like really flexible, joyful movements. So things like some yoga and some strength training, even do like, you know, the, you know, like a road race with friends, whether that's a hot chocolate run, a 5k or a cherry (laughs) blossom, 10 miler, but just, they've really gone from sedentary to movement. And they've really gone from like dieting to like balanced you know, attuned eating. So they're practice intuitive eating and they definitely, it's like desserts fit in their life, you know, but they're not like using desserts as a thing that they do to like soothe themselves. And so clients will be like, Rebecca, I don't know how to talk to you about this, but like clothes are getting looser and I'm excited about that. Am I doing body kindness wrong? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, again, you do not use body kindness to lose weight, but it's the thing that you give up is the idea that you control weight. Mm. So when I have clients who are, are, are experiencing this. I'm so grateful. I thank them for bringing it into the room because it needs processing because it is a slippery slope. Like, how do you not, you know, like, like, what do you do when you accidentally kind of congratulate yourself? You know, that like, you really have to pivot your thoughts into, but wait a minute, what do I feel grateful for of that are meaningful actions? And we'll talk about things like I'm sleeping better. Like I'm drinking more water. I'm getting sick less. Like, I feel like my skin is like 
brighter, but not because I'm, you know, getting plastic surgery, mm-hmm. just maybe I, you know, like I'm, I'm doing less extremes in my eating. I'm, I'm adequately nourished. I'm enjoying movement with friends. And it's just like, like, I kind of finally feel like there's this healthy path that a lot of people are on this path and it looks like health to everyone else, but inside they're body bashing or shaming or they're restricting. And so it's like on the outside, it looks like health but Mm -hmm. you know, it's different. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I really encourage is that you're not trying to center weight loss as the most valuable thing that's happening there. If it's happening and, and know that like, you know, a lot of times what people do notice that their weight either stays the same, or if it goes down, it doesn't go down as much as what what they had before as goal weights or whatnot, but they're because they're fully bought into body kindness. If they finally get to a point where like, when I notice all these good things I'm doing for myself, I can accept this. And Mm -hmm. I do want to say that there are people who practice body kindness and they do gain weight. And this is why that's not bad either, because depending on where you start practicing, you might've actually been weight cycling outside of your set point range. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the body kindness practice, you're actually healing your metabolism and you're healing your relationship to food. And so your body ends up you know, increasing in weight because you're getting out of weight cycling mode before metabolism heals. And then it settles at a weight and that weight might be higher than your lowest dieting weight, but you've Mm. got to compare the quality of your life Mm -hmm. and And the mental energy that you're expending (laughs) on self, self love versus self, you know, flagellation. Like, because if anyone has been in this cycle and I really don't know women, I really don't know a woman who has not been through this or isn't currently through this. I don't know if you do, Mm -hmm. but like, it takes up a lot of energy. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's so much work to be on yourself like that. Right. It, it is, it's very emotionally draining. And what it does is, you know, so it's not, you've heard of the word willpower. There's really no mm-hmm. such thing about that, but we do have a limited amount of like cognitive thinking energy available. And there are people who spend not only almost all their waking hours, like worried about their body and their body in space and their food and their movement, um, to the point of where it's, it's anxiety. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, Um, but they even dream about it. And so they have trouble sleeping at night. So you're talking about over a hundred percent of your time of your waking hours can be spent on this. It is really emotionally debilitating. It's hard to enjoy birthday parties. It's hard to enjoy brunches. It's hard to be social. And so this you're, you're deprived, not just in food, right. But in, in what it means to be human and connecting to others, right. That Mm -hmm. second body kind of pillar about connect, connect to your body to know when you're hungry or full or tired, but also connection to what it means to be a human being. And we are meant to belong and have meaningful relationships and meant to connect to others. And if you are so stuck listening to your inner critic and your inner punisher and your inner monitor and Ms. Perfectionist in your brain, those are all things we go through in the book. If you are in a relationship with those voices, it is so hard to have the, that, that thinking energy to make body kind of choices. You're going to wear that out. And that's when you're like, ah, screw it. I'm not going to do any of this it's because mm-hmm. you've wasted all that energy somewhere else. But it's also hard to find that emotional energy in that will to say, you know what? I really want to enjoy this social experience with somebody else. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just a whole other way of depriving yourself that we don't think about, but it's and absolutely that- there. 
And that also, that can happen with orthorexia too, right? I mean, and for people who are not familiar with orthorexia, do you want to just quickly define that? Yeah. So it's an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Um, it's definitely on a spectrum of eating disorders. So like with respect to like seeking a diagnosis for orthorexia would likely end up being um, diagnosed as um, as an eating disorder, not otherwise specified, but that's really just clinical criteria. Mm-hmm. So this the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating is like you're really attached to like, you know, pure, right? So <laughs> it's one thing to kind of be like, you know what? I realized that I've been getting help from the grocery store, some pre-made meals and whatnot. And I think if I just put a little bit more time and effort into prepping at home more, I might save a little bit of time and I might improve like the quality or the balance of what I'm eating, right? So like you buy already shredded broccoli and already shredded carrot and you put that in a saute pan and you add that to like some, you know, you know, um, brown rice and quinoa or, you know, even just regular white rice, nothing wrong with that. It actually tastes better to a lot of people. Right. (laughs) You know, and so next, you know, you're putting together a stir fry with some scrambled eggs, soy sauce, toast, sesame oil. And it's like, you could say, oh, well, this tastes really good. And I saved money, you know, and it took me 10 or 15 minutes. I would not call that orthorexia. I would call that being conscious of budget and making some efforts to cook a little bit more. But Mm -hmm. orthorexia would kind of be like where you, you avoid social events because you don't really know or trust what's in that food. Um, and 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 some, there's also something else called um, ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, and that's a totally it's it's like really 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 picky eating. I've seen that, mm. and I haven't heard about that as much. What what did you call it? So it's called ARFID, avoidant mm-hmm. restrictive food intake disorder, and that is more I see when when somebody has a young trauma history. Um, sometimes it's around food or a food allergy, and it just and, mm. and it just you know. What and what ends up happening is just you have really extreme picky eating, and there's only a very short list of foods that you'll eat, and it's this worry that something bad is going to happen um, if you were to eat that food, and it could be like choking or vomiting or you know like something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so it's you know I I just wanted to bring that up because there, you could see when you think of when somebody has this purity orthoexia type tendencies that there could possibly be some amount of overlap and which is why if you know that something isn't right with food is why I would seek um, meeting with a therapist who knows eating disorders don't you know we do, we want to reduce that diagnosis shame is a therapist who knows eating disorders can talk to you about what's happening with food mm-hmm. and can help find out where you are in the spectrum and then help build in support, what might help in therapy, what might help with an intuitive eating health at every size dietitian. And Mm -hmm. that's really how you're really um, going to know dietitians who work with eating disorders and who also, um, you know, tend to identify as health at every size and intuitive eating are likely going to be able to do screening. And, you know, I've definitely caught folks who have had a diagnosable eating disorder show up just like, I just want to eat better, right? And Mm -hmm. you start to peel the layers and you see that there's something else there. But um, at the end of the day, I think the big pin, you know, that everyone, you know, should keep it sort of in their mind is that diet culture presents this idea of wellness that is really only for the elite because you have to spend a lot of time and money on it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of what you would read about in Goop, right? Everything is so perfect. Yeah. So it's like- I feel like I feel like this whole time I've just 
I see her in my head and that's exactly what I'm thinking about. And I haven't named that yet, Goop, but that's exactly the kind of profile. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just in it, it's hijacking wellness, really. It's hijacking mm-hmm. health. And so if you're this person, like, but I really care about health and I like the idea of wellness, understand that there are things that diet culture presents that really aren't healthy and that really end up taking up a lot of your time and money. And so, no, that doesn't say like, oh, in order to practice body kindness that tomorrow morning you eat a lot of donuts, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that might not feel like body kindness to you, but it might be like, you know what? If I'm being honest, I actually really like donuts from this certain place and I never get them because that's always like a avoid, 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 bad food kind of thing. Body kindness might be like, do I want to make some plans? Maybe like, let's go out with a friend and go and have donuts for breakfast and talk and catch up. And like, let's do that because we don't want to be afraid of enjoying yummy food, you know? And so it's- Especially donuts. Yes, exactly. I have a soft spot. (laughs) Right, right. But you know, like, you know, if if you, if if you're like, oh no, you know, I, you know, I would never do that. I would worry about that, that thing. You know, I just, I can't imagine- you know, that it is that somebody really could have a good life and just never, never follow a food preference. So sometimes people are like, I'm just not really a sweets person. And I get that, you know, um, so you follow your preferences, but if you're more of a savory, well, then how do you feel about French fries? You know, how do you feel about chili cheese fries? And you find there's some sort of workable way where, you know, your food preferences kind of blend with your values. So like I've helped, you know, people who are vegetarian and who are ethical vegans practice body kindness. Um, if you're trying to follow vegan because you think it's going to help you lose weight and, you know, sort of achieve some sort of superiority, that is when I would worry about it. You know, we're not Mm going to judge anybody for their food preferences. Um, but what can I do that sort of helps me feel like life is better and more more personally meaningful? And there's a lot of preference work that you'll end up doing there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to, we've mentioned, you've mentioned several times trauma has come up. And mm-hmm. in my interviews with different guests at this point in this show, like my podcast has been out for a bit now and trauma and eating disorders has come up a lot. And I wonder in your work how prevalent early trauma or even young adult trauma has played into the disordered eating or the diet culture that you've helped treat people for. Yeah. Um, I would say it's, it's across the board. I mean, I think dieting in and of itself is a trauma. And Mm -hmm. so I ask a question, um, you know, of clients, like, tell me the last time you really felt like, like what age were you, where you really felt like, you just kind of trusted yourself around food, you know, that that felt pretty solid. And you also felt good in your body. And um, usually most people, they'll give me an age range of somewhere between five and nine, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and that's a thing. It's like, that's where we're doing a lot of learning about the world. And that's, and we're learning diet culture. We're learning that there are good and bad bodies. Um, and we're learning that if we're thin enough, that my body is good. But if I have a classmate who's a higher weight, their body must be bad. And, and, and that's hard for everybody. You know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. hard for the higher weight kid who could be getting bullied, who could feel body shame in gym class, who might be getting lessons in school that is basically saying, yeah, your body is bad. So there's, you know, and that has been a trigger for some of my clients who, who've had eating disorders 
And I've even had a recent podcast guest who that was the trigger for her eating disorder and it didn't get caught until college. And it didn't because she was higher weight and she was a black woman. Mm. And so, I mean, can you imagine struggling with an eating disorder for all that time, never getting the help that you needed because you were chronologically young and you also Mm -hmm. were, you know, your needs were not getting met through the school, through doctors, through family, you know, um, and honestly just through, it's a failure of society. So, you know, whether it it's, you know, you, you had mean disorder, you know, the thing about the context of trauma to understand is trauma is all about survival and we all have trauma in our life. Some traumas are bigger, some traumas are smaller. Um, so a few traumas that I would identify as I, um, my parents got divorced when I was two. And so, and my mom did get remarried, but there was like things with visitations and then deciding, you know, just being from like a split family that I was coping with when other families, you know, didn't seem to have that. My mom, we were food insecure. So my, when my mom could get work, she would work long hours. And Mm -hmm. so like, I, you know, like I, I, I knew that we didn't have as much food as my friends did. Um, and so that had, that had sort of a, an impact on me that I would identify as like a, like a small T trauma. Um, you know, and, and so, and then there are traumas that are much, much bigger that are um, likely to happen to, to someone that could then trigger an eating disorder. Um, yes. I'm, I'm thinking in my, in the, my experience talking to guests, there's been abuse of some sort mm-hmm. often that causes some sort of turning in on one's body and, and trying mm-hmm. to control the situation by controlling one's body. Yeah. One's body, or even if it's not directly about your body, but just food, there's something, you know, when you get this trauma lesion in the brain and your brain is trying to work around that trauma, what happens is, is that what you identify as safety feels like safety. Your brain is responding as if it's safer. So that's the amygdala part of your brain that's responding as if this is safer. And so then it, it, you know, you kind of, you emotionally regulate through the, through whatever you're doing that's eating disorder behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so then your cortex tract tends to learn. That's the thinking and the learning part of your brain. Oh, this is safer. So for, for someone without an eating disorder, for us clinicians, we know that it's an illusion of safety, but very much in that person's lived experience, they, they have a trauma trigger. They might be disassociated and they're engaging in eating disorder behaviors. Um, as a way of coping with the trauma, we call that maladaptive. So it, because mm-hmm. it helps them think that they're surviving, their trauma brain is putting them to the then and there when the trauma was actually happening. Mm-hmm. And recovery is about being in the here and now. And so it's about mm-hmm. learning the ways of caring for yourself and, and you know, learning to cope with your trauma through therapy. There's things called EMDR type of therapy that mm-hmm. tends to be really beneficial. Internal family systems is a type of therapy that could be really beneficial for trauma. Um, and so, yeah, there's so much shame around mental health that I think a lot of people don't realize that they have had traumas. They're not willing to label it as a trauma. So I've had an eating disorder client whose mom developed cancer when she was six and from six till 10, she thought she was going to lose her mom and did not identify that as a traumatic experience in her life, but it most certainly was right. So yeah. if we do our own explorations, you know, you could really see how, how we've, we've not just the cultural conditioning, but how we've learned to try to establish safety and control through food 
exercise or our appearance and then get it validated by culture, you can start to see how really twisted that is, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about your your message and then the platform that you have and, and all the work you've done. And I, I had this thought, which, you know, I'm hesitant to almost say, but I wonder, what is your understanding of this type of field for someone who doesn't look like you? Because if someone is doing work similar to what you're doing or trying to spread awareness about body positivity and they're not, uh, they don't have blonde hair and they don't have this like very presentable in our culture Mm -hmm. appearance, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe they're, they're bigger than you are, or maybe they, they're, they don't have this kind of pleasing, you know, demeanor, whatever, whatever you want to put on it. Mm -hmm. How is their message received versus yours? And and what do you think about that? And have you encountered that? Yeah. Uh, so yes, yes, and yes. So <laughs> so I have privilege, I have thin privilege, I have privilege for my education, um, I have white privilege, right? And so, and the more intersections you have, right? So, so let's just take dietitians. So there are very few higher weight dietitians. Um, and I'm going to use the word fat as an ally. So there are very Mm -hmm. fat dietitians who identify as fat and that is a problem. But part of that problem is, first of all, it's hard to become a dietitian. It requires a certain amount of privilege, um, with respect to academic resources. Um, and you know, and then also like Think about what we believe as dietitians, how welcome is a higher weight student felt into the program and how are Mm -hmm. they treated differently throughout their dietetic internship? It's very hard to get a dietetic internship and how are they treated differently? And then, well, what if you're um, higher weight and Latina or higher weight and black? Um, It's even harder because of the intersections. And so first of all, you're seeing fewer because the problem is in the system and structure that we need to be able to change. And so, for example, I'm an advisor to this group called Diversify Dietetics, and they're mostly focused. They believe in all the types of intersection diversity, but right now what they're mostly focused is on helping dietetic interns get through their internships and dealing with the racism that is existing. Mm -hmm. Um, And as more, um, you know, black dietitians become aware of health at every size, then they can become clinicians that can help people of color, right. With, with, you know, that just shared experiences. And so from where I sit, what I'm trying to do is realize that there will people that will never, I'll never be able to learn enough or do enough to be what they need to help because I don't share their identities or their lived experiences. And Mm -hmm. that is good. So where can I put my effort on changing the landscape of who gets, you know, access to become a dietitian, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and for the dietitians who exist now who identify as higher weight, right? I would want to help amplify their voices, support their voices, make referrals, um, right? You know, to help build and grow their practice and Mm -hmm. their success. And, and I can't be the fragile one who is sitting here and being like, oh, but I want to help that higher weight person. (laughs) I create a body kindness. Well, a (laughs) clinician can get supervision from me and learn how to administer body kindness and, and have a thriving practice you know, be, because the the more visibility and accessibility we have, like the better it is for everyone. You know, yeah. so it it is. I'm glad you asked that question. It is a really sticky 
problem when we have um, helping professionals that are approaching it from a scarcity mindset. The mindset that I use actually talked to me through professional speaking. And it was this, um, the the founder of the National Speakers Association, he had this philosophy called build a bigger pie. And he's, you want to invite everyone to the table and build a bigger pie and everyone's going to get a slice. And I just think that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. The best that we can do for like, say my kids, younger generation and, and anyone now is, I mean, we can immediately put less bigotry out in the world, do our own work to learn and grow, to stop the weight stigmas, to change our practices. And what we could do is pay attention to the systems and structures that uphold the social power and the privileges. So this, it's such important work so that mm-hmm. there is an easier passage for higher weight dietitians, for dietitians of color. So that diversity landscape exists. And we need to have successful businesses that are weight inclusive, successful trainers to be a personal trainer that can be, you know, Hey, I help people with body kindness and I'm size inclusive. So you're going to see me for personal training and for movement. I'm going to help you build a healthy relationship for exercise. And I'm Mm going to help you with self-compassion and kindness when you want to be focused on weight loss as the goal, right? Mm -hmm. But that's Mm -hmm. a totally changing the paradigm of what it means to be a personal trainer or a group Mm -hmm. fitness instructor or a bar class instructor, right? That's changing the paradigm, but that's what we have to do because it's going to create less psychological damage overall, fewer eating disorders, less anxiety, less depression, much more body positivity. Um, and we've got to stop saying like, like someone like Tess Holiday. it's like cosmopolitan supermodel agent represented. She is a beautiful person, right? Or Lizzo with her Grammys and all her amazing songs, mm-hmm. you know, and, but we look at these celebrity figures and we say, but, but, but what about your health? Because we just want you to be there for your son, Tess Holiday, And we just want you to, you know, we don't want you to get diabetes, you know, um, Lizzo. Mm-hmm. And they said, we have got to stop that. That is bias and it's wrong. We've got to support all humans and their body mm-hmm. autonomy to learn and grow and take care of themselves however they want and stop insisting healthism on everybody. But then me as a clinician who I am here for people who are concerned about their health and well-being, I want to help you change the definitions of what you see as health. So it's mental health and physical. I want to help you have a better time at the doctors. I want to help you conceive if you want to conceive. I want to help you to achieve all these health-related goals that you think center on you achieving some amount of thinness that is probably not biologically possible and not, but, but you'll have a better life because through body kindness, that compassion and that preference seeking around food and movement and sleep, it's just, you are able to let go and reject all the nastiness that's around you in the world. And that's real important for people. Mm-hmm. You know, before we go, I wanted to ask you if you observe, let's say a classmate in your children's school who looks really thin, or if you observe someone who you're worried about, you know, and you're concerned about them being underweight, Mm -hmm. what is the proper approach? Because there's a body, you know, criticism in there, Mm -hmm. but there's also, and I don't mean, oh, they're so thin. I wonder what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, what if you're genuinely concerned? I mean, I have an experience when I was in college that, that someone I was close to seemed to be wasting away and there wasn't a lot of intervention on the 
the part of her family. And finally, after a while, me and some roommates kind of got in there and and tried to help, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering what the line is and, and when when can a bystander or a concerned person say something without, you know, stepping over a line? Mm-hmm. And That's should a, they? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. Um, so the first thing that I want to say is um, so – being concerned if you're suspecting an eating disorder, you need to know that eating disorders can happen at any size. And so a lot of what we're seeing now is people who have higher weight eating disorders that if they get a diet, it's longer to get a diagnosis. If they get diagnosed, it gets diagnosed as atypical anorexia, which is ridiculous because mm-hmm. it, it literally is anorexia. They're calling it atypical because a person's higher weight and that makes mm-hmm. no sense. So that's, mm-hmm. so you want to be real mindful that a lot of times people are actually really struggling on the inside and things aren't getting noticed because they're being congratulated for their weight loss. So mm. noticing any amount of change change, not just in weight, but also in habits and behaviors like around food or movement. Are they becoming more socially isolated? Um, Are they saying no to meals out, right? Just what are you seeing in their life that is raising some concerns? Um, You know, I've had clients who will do things like they'll go to happier happy hour and they'll drink, but they won't eat. Right. And then it turns out that they would like purge. And so it's like, I knew cause I was their clinician, but like you mm-hmm. might be their friend and just see patterns like that, that might not seem right. Um, the line is really tough because, um, you know, like what, what, what are, what are the boundaries there? Um, I want to give something that might be helpful. And this would be from ages two to 18 years, just to take it all the way back there, kids mm-hmm. are supposed to grow on a growth curve and they, they get put on this curve at age two and it follows through 18. And some kids are higher on that curve and they're just going to be a higher weight. They, they may be taller and higher weight, but a larger frame. And they're just, that's, they're following on their growth curve. They're just not going to be, you know, that 50% average on the growth curve. There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. If you try to put a kid on a diet and you might be messing with them during puberty when they could be gaining between 40 and 60 pounds as part of normal puberty, you will actually induce weight cycling. So weight mm-hmm. loss, at least disordered eating, they'll actually jump up even higher on their curve because the body's like, why are you doing this to me? And so that could be really mm-hmm. dangerous. I'm bringing this up because there are, again, in that two to 18, there are kids, some are born early, some are just really low on the curve, like eighth percentile low, and they are just small and they're walking around and the parents are worried they eat so much and they also get, you know, you're a toothpick, you know, and Mm -hmm. that also hurts. And again, in that case, is the child following the curve? I get a lot of pediatric referrals when they're following their curve, but they're, they're kind of like fifth percentile that they're worried. Like we want you to double check to make sure that they really are getting enough at home. And if they drop below their curve, the alarm bells are out because they really, they don't have the wiggle room, right? And they're concerned about normal growth. So I did want to let you know that because that's, it's different like in adulthood and that you're, you're stopping growing and other things are happening. And so that, that sort of intervening might be different because when a child is growing, I'm like, Oh my gosh, say something because you don't know what is happening. Um, and it's, it might sound something like, you know, um, 
please let me know if I'm crossing a boundary here. But there were some things that I noticed in in habits with this child and some concerns that I have. And, you know, I just want to make sure like, are the needs being met? Is there Mm -hmm. a way that I might be able to connect with some resources that I could help? Um, You know, because I, you know, I just really care about you deeply. Like it might be something like that. And the closer the person is to you, the deeper you can be in those caring type words. But I would want to empower any caring teacher or school staff member who just started noticing that something was fishy that let yourself try to get maybe some support internally. Maybe there's a school guidance counselor where you could start a conversation and figure out how to have that conversation. Because I know what that feels like to just kind of cover your eyes, but then worry, like, am I ignoring something where if I just gently step forward, I could be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And the closer you are to a person, the more I would empower you to have a conversation. Um, We need to be careful that, Somebody might be going through, um, you know, a disease or a medication change or something. If the only thing you're commenting on is weight, you know, that that can hurt even further. And mm. so it might mm-hmm. be this gentle conversation. It's like where you first ask for permission to talk about and say, you know what, I've noticed some things, um, you know, that have concerned me about like well-being and self-care you know, and and what are you noticing? You know, is it drinking more alcohol? Is it, you know, not really eating socially anymore? And I just want you to know that I care about you and I'm here for you. If you would like to talk about um, this more, I would really love to talk to you more. I just want to listen. Is that something you might be interested in doing? Is you really got to respect their boundaries, ask for permission to have another conversation. It's hard to watch other people suffer, but they have that body autonomy and to sort of jump in with this fear-based control could, it's like playing tug of war with them. They Mm. could pull hard on the tug rope and then they pull even harder. And you could be part of something that made something worse just because you needed the conscious clearing that you did all you could. Mm -hmm. So you got to be really gentle with the approach and be respectful. And they might say, no, I don't want to talk to you about this. And they have to twist in the wind a little bit more. And at some point they will, they will get some type of help and support and know that because you care about them, you're going to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Did Thank that help? That. I know that was really long. <laughs> it was a no. big question. I couldn't just blow off. No, it's a very <laughs> complex. It's a complex question. It's a complex issue. And I think the answer has to be like that. It has to be nuanced. Um, there's no one size fits all. Pardon the pun. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so so can you tell listeners where, where can we find your resources and where's the best place to find your work? Sure. Go to bodykindnessbook.com. And when you're there, you'll get my social handles and I'm happy to connect on social, but you'll also see my podcast categorized out by themes. And I'm, I'm always re-theming old episodes. So I have 140 some episodes. So I, I theme new ones, but I'm always re-theming old ones. And so that way, like, for example, if you're just getting started, there's a whole series called Learn and Grow. And you click on that and you hear me talk to Bernie, who was a friend of mine who was on The Biggest Loser. And mm-hmm. then he weight cycled after the biggest loser. And I was still doing, he became a friend because I was doing that weight loss stuff. And yeah. then when I came back to him with body kindness, he's like, no, I'm not podcasting with you. I've gained weight and I know nothing. <laughs> Get out of here. So anyways, in these learn and grow episodes, you actually hear us have 
a, a conversation about how he's changed over two to three years in embracing mm-hmm. body kindness and you hear the original episode. So if you want that sort of sounds like a counseling session, you know, <laughs> those episodes would be great. And then there's listener questions and answers. And then there's all these all these themes. So you'll get all that. Um, but I want to make sure that folks are connected through my email because that's where I'm always kind of updating on what's the latest that I've been doing. If you have been listening to the podcast or am I doing a workshop or, you know, book sale, anything like that. Um, and so that is, you can browse to it from the homepage is get started. There's a pop-up that says, Hey, do you want this free body kindness course? And that's what it is. You give your name and email. I'll send you some emails kind of sharing a little more behind the scenes, um, what people say when they read it and how they're implementing it. Um, and then you'll get an email and I send either every other week or once a month. And it's just kind of a quick, easy read, like kind of what important articles are out there that I think are worth it. A lot of them I'm quoted in. And so I'm like, Hey, here is my quote and here's a shareable. Mm -hmm. Um, so you want to get on that for sure. And then when I, um, you know, I have a free Facebook group too, but I'll send you an invitation through that, through that get started. Great. Thank you so much. You have so many resources, so so many ways to get started and learn. Um, Thank you so much for giving me time and for for being on the show. I'm so happy we got the chance to talk. Oh, well, I'm so um, grateful that you invited me to be a guest. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.